The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, we're going to read some more of the Word of God this morning as we study from the book of Matthew. And actually, I'd like you to find two passages of Scripture. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 46. And then if you would also uh, just grab John chapter 18, we're going to read from there as well. And uh, both of these Scriptures have to do with the arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ And that's going to be the subject of the message this this morning, the betrayal of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you need Matthew chapter 26 and also John chapter 18. When we think of famous stories in the Bible, many of the ones that stand out are names that we find in conflict or in contrast. Uh, We think of Adam and Eve and of Abraham and Sarah, of Joshua and the city of Jericho. We think of people like Samson and Delilah and David and Goliath. And if you really want to stretch your thinking just a little bit, you might think of Elijah and Jezebel or Mordecai and Haman. And there's opposition in those names and there's contrast in those names. You think of Eve. Uh, Eve was the first in transgression and she actually helped Adam to, helped Adam be tempted to eat of the forbidden fruit. We know about Sarah. Sarah laughed when she heard the promise that God made to Abraham. Goliath said that he wanted to feed David's flesh to the birds. Jezebel promised that Elijah would be dead before the next day was over. Those are characters that are in opposition. But when we think of the opposition between two people, there is none. There is no story that holds a candle to this one, and that is Judas in opposition to Jesus Christ. None of the other stories create such disgust when we hear them as this particular story does. Uh, we, we, of course, excuse Eve because she was the weaker vessel, Uh, We're okay with Sarah because later she did embrace the promise that God gave to Abraham. Goliath doesn't scare us any longer. Uh, He's not really all that menacing because there was just a young shepherd boy that cut off his head. But Judas, we can't stand. His name represents the worst of humanity. We can think of the worst crimes that are done, crimes of men and women and children, things that are done against them, crimes of murder and crimes of rape, of pedophilia, but none of them stands out as being as bad as the crime that Judas committed against Jesus when he went up to him and he placed that kiss of betrayal on his cheek. Now, in earlier messages, we've talked about Judas, and I've also mentioned how the worst crimes are measured. They're actually measured by the victim, Crimes against children are usually considered worse than crimes against adults. Crimes against women are usually worse than crimes against men. And we would say that a crime against a philanthropist is worse than a crime against a criminal. And a crime against Jesus is the worst of all because Jesus was the greatest of all. He was the kindest of all. He was the most compassionate of all. He was the most humble. He was the meekest. He was the person that loved other people more than any other person. And so to betray him, 
To betray Jesus Christ is worse than our measuring rod can actually measure. Now, all of that's very interesting when we consider the crime that was committed against Jesus by Judas, and we think about how serious that that is, but none of us really thinks that the crimes that we commit against Judas are all that bad. We're not too disgusted with ourselves, but we are certainly disgusted with Judas who betrayed Christ. Now, you might think a little bit about that today as we discuss the lesson today. Why do we have so much disgust for Judas but we don't have very much for us. Now, I want us to go to the scriptures and where we find here with close examination, I believe some very interesting facts about the betrayal of Judas. If you'd stand with me for just a moment again as we read scripture. Matthew 26, and we'll start at verse number 46. Jesus speaks, and this is right after uh, he's finished praying in the garden. He says, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword." Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, if you'll turn over to the Gospel of John in chapter 18, John gives his retelling of this event in the garden. John 18, verse number 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me, I have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, 
and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd open up the scriptures to us today and help us to think on these things and give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take just a moment here to get the setting of the scripture. This is the fourth day of the Passion Week. It's late Wednesday evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden, of course, is on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley and facing the eastern side of Jerusalem where you could see the Temple Mount. And here Jesus was with his disciples and the time was just a few hours after they had eaten the Passover meal. Just a little while after he had given them uh, the new church ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And of course that supper is about his suffering and his death and as he finished with that, events are moving very quickly to the fulfillment of that picture of his death. As Jesus left the upper room, his, his heart was very heavy. He was thinking about the horrible death that was coming. But more importantly, he was thinking about that impending judgment that would come upon him at the hand of his father, that God was going to pour out all of his wrath on him when Jesus went to the cross. The scripture says that the father was going to smite the shepherd. All the father's fury was going to be poured out on Christ and, uh, to, to, to cover, to take care of the penalty of sin that belonged to his people. Now, he, he just spent several hours in prayer. His heart was broken with sorrow. The Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. And that pressure was so great on him at this time that if he had not had an angel to come and strengthen him there in the garden, he would have died under that intense mental strain. And so that angel came, and then Jesus straightened up from that prostrate position that he was in. He was lying on the ground. And now he gathers up his disciples, and they head for the gate of the garden where the betrayal is about to take place. Well, that brings us to verse number 46. That Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said, it's time to get up. He aroused them to get up because he said, the time has come. Now, numerous times we read in the scripture that his time had not come. There were times when they tried to take him and tried to capture him in order to take him to the cross. And we read in John chapter 7, verse number 30, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. But here he is now ready because the hour had come. The hour that's been settled in eternity past. The hour that he's going to give his life for his people. The hour of the horrible prospects of the Father pouring out that wrath was there. And now Jesus was ready to meet his destiny that's been planned for him. Now this morning what I'd like for us to do is I want to outline the components that are a part of the arrest of the Son of God. And those are words that really should seem strange to our ears, that someone would arrest the Son of God. I mean, it doesn't really even make sense to us that anyone want, would want to arrest Jesus, but that's what they did, and it was a crime that was so heinous 
It became heinous because it is God's own beloved son who is arrested here in the garden. The son of God was betrayed by man. Now first, I'd like for us to look today, and this is as far as we're going to get in the message, uh, just a lot of background information I'm going to give you today, and then we'll pick it up again next week. But I want to talk to you this morning about Judah's signal. Judah's signal. In verse number 47, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. It says, and while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came. At this point, we don't really need a description of Judas, do we? We know who he is. We know his character. We know what he's about to do. We recognize him as one of the twelve apostles without being told that information. There's really not a person in the civilized world who's not aware of the name Judas. On Christmas Eve, uh, in that message, we discussed a little bit about how Jesus was given his name and how that Jesus took his name and he set it apart from all other names. His name is the same as Joshua in the Old Testament, but we never have any trouble at all distinguishing Jesus from any other person. We just hear his name, and we know who he is. And so Jesus has more name recognition than any other person in the world, any other person that's ever lived. And if there's anybody that comes close in name recognition, it would have to be this person that we read about here in the Scriptures whose name is Judas. He's the only one that even comes close to that, and we really don't need a descriptive name put after him. We don't even have to have the Iscariot part put on there, which is just a description of the place that he was from. We don't really need to know that because we do know who Judas is. But in Matthew's time, when he wrote this story, uh, when he wrote about Jesus' life, not everybody knew who Judas was. There were many people that were named Judas. It was a very common name, actually the same as the Hebrew, Judah. And so when Matthew wrote this, the events were fairly recent, uh, relatively fresh, and his readers needed to know who are the people that are involved in this story. And so Matthew's account would read like a newspaper article where he begins to explain who these people are and who it was that did the terrible deed. And he says the one who did this was a man by the name of Judas who was one of the twelve. And Judas is described that way so we can get a feel for just how bad that it was. Several times, he's called one of the twelve. And what that does, it just heightens the disgust for who he is and the deed that he did. You wouldn't actually have to be a follower of Jesus to recognize that what's done here is something that's horrible. This is terribly bad. You get a feel for how twisted it is. Even lost people could see that, that here is a man who's been betrayed by his friend. And so when people received Matthew's manuscript, I'm sure that there were some who have said, Have you read this? Did you see this story? Do you remember this man named Jesus that was crucified some time ago? Do you remember him? Do you actually know who it was that turned him over to the authorities? 
Do you know who that was? Can you believe this? This was a man that was with him, a friend of his, a friend by the name of Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. So he's one of the twelve. He's one of those men who has unique privileges. He's one who's very close. He's one for months and months watched and followed and looked and saw what Jesus did. He saw thousands of acts of compassion. He was one of the twelve. And we just look at that and we think it is just unthinkable that a confidant, the one who claimed to be his friend, would be the one that would betray him. And yet we have to look at it scripturally. We have to understand why Judas was different from the other eleven. All of them were apostles. All of them had been chosen by Jesus. All of them experienced moments of weakness. But there's only one of them that did what Judas did. There's no conspiracy among the disciples. Judas acted alone. He was trusted by the others and trusted enough that he was the treasurer of the group. He carried their money. And he was chosen just like the other eleven. And he was chosen like them, all having the same heart. They were all in the same condition when Jesus chose them. But at this time, there's something very different about Judas. All of the other disciples were prevented from doing what Judas did. So why that difference? Why is it different for Judas? Why is he different from the rest of the twelve, or the eleven, the other eleven? What is that? Well, it's not his upbringing. It's not his parentage. It's not his education. It's not the economy. No, the difference is actually the difference that Jesus made. Eleven of these men had been touched by the grace of God. Eleven of these men had their hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Eleven of them were changed. There were eleven of them that became new creatures in Jesus Christ. And only one of them did not. And you have to ask, why? He saw all the same things that all the others saw. He saw everything that happened, but one of them never became a believer in Jesus Christ. Why not? Well, there can only be one answer for that. Only one answer. God is sovereign. And we just have to leave it there. We can't delve into the mind of God to search this out and discover an answer. God's ways are too high for us. The only explanation that we can be left with is when we inquire about this is what Peter said. Peter said, Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And so every time that I read that, I have to think about how God is the one that made the distinction. All of these men have the same advantages. All of them have an external call of the gospel that's given by Jesus Christ himself. But there was only one of them that was not given an internal call that brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. Now God made the distinction in that. And God is the one who has the right to do it. Then another thing that I think about is that all of the disciples would have chosen Judah's path if not for that distinction. All of them would have done what Judas did, if not for God's distinction in them. And really, folks, every one of us here in the room today, we would be in a long line of descendants from Judas doing exactly what he did if it weren't for the grace of God. 
And so every one of us needs to thank. If you're saved today, you need to thank God. You need to be eternally grateful that God made a difference in you. That His Holy Spirit called you by His grace and by His mercy. And He saved you and brought you out of the darkness of sin. So here is Judas. Judas came. He's one of the twelve. And Matthew describes him that way to help first century readers understand who did it and how despicable the crime was. Judas came. But we see that Judas did not come alone. Later, we see that he could have come alone. Judas didn't really need a mob because Jesus was ready to go. Jesus was ready to surrender himself. He doesn't really need a mob because Jesus will offer no resistance. But Judas was a coward. Too much of a coward to come alone. And so he came with a great multitude to arrest the one who went meekly to the cross. Let me talk to you for just a moment about the multitude that came with Judas. There's a lot of discussion about this, about who was involved in this arrest. And I think it's rather interesting to to look into it a little bit further and see who was there and how the arrest developed. Now, some would say that this is the priests and the elders, and what they've done is they've gathered a bunch of riffraff. They found a bunch of lower life types, and they came. And so they say the priests and the elders gathered up a mob of thugs and troublemakers, and those are the ones that arrested Jesus. That doesn't really seem to be the case, especially by what we read in John. This is how John described the crowd. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. There were priests and there were Pharisees that were in the crowd. That tells us that the main religious rulers were a part of the arrest. These are men who would have been a part of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court. The chief priests are the Sadducees, you heard of him, or heard of them rather, and the rulers of the people, they are the Pharisees. And then along with them are officers that came from the temple. Those would have been the temple police. And they had actually been sent at another time before. They'd been sent to arrest Jesus already. That's described for us in John 7, 32. Then the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. But the problem with these officers is that they were toothless when it came to seizing Jesus. So we read in verses 44 and 47, And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, that is, the Pharisees said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? So the officers alone, they couldn't be trusted to bring Jesus down. And so they needed some more firepower. They needed a larger group to make this happen. And here's where we come to a most interesting word in John 18.3. Judas then, having received a band of men. And that changes the complexion of the group immensely. A band refers to a cohort of Roman soldiers. This would have been about 600 soldiers that were armed and ready to fight against any resistance. Now the chief priests, they weren't sure that 
They could take Jesus alone. The temple police had failed before. They'd never been successful, and so they weren't going to take any chances. And let me explain the dynamics of that just a bit. To receive help from a band of soldiers means that the the priests must have gone to Pilate to secure this force. Now think a moment about the implications of that, that Pilate was aware of Jesus before he went to trial. And what these priests had done, they'd gone to Pilate to convince him that Jesus was a revolutionary, and if there wasn't something done very quickly about him, there was going to be an insurrection uh, in, that, in that clan. Well, how, how are the Jews going to do this? How are they going to convince Pilate to give them 600 soldiers? Well, let's think about what happened just a few days before. Do you remember that there's a, a man named Barabbas that enters the picture a little bit later? Barabbas had been put in jail for murder and for insurrection. A little while before this, there was an uprising and Barabbas led a group of men against Rome and he was caught and he was put into jail and he was in jail at the very same time that Jesus uh, was, was brought before Pilate. So Pilate must have been convinced by the priest that he needed to do this and if he didn't, he'd have another Barabbas on his hands. There's going to be another insurrection, so you need to step up here and you need to help us to get Jesus before that happens. Now you remember here then that Pilate had not yet personally interviewed Jesus, and so he was deceived by the chief priest in lending his help. And then further, we know that it must be the case because the Romans never would have allowed a large group like this to gather with weapons because they feared this very thing that there would be an uprising, an insurrection. And so in this group, it's the Romans who come with the swords. The temple police, I suppose, were more like uh, England's bobbies or something, and they held their billy clubs or whatever they had, and they brought those, and maybe they were concealed weapons. And altogether, there would have been about seven to 800 men that showed up to arrest Jesus. So Judas had a lot of help. He brought a lot of men with him. And with all those men, they needed a prearranged signal to tell them who Jesus was. Why did they need that? Well, let's imagine the scene. It's late at night. There aren't any streetlights. The crowd is carrying torches as they move up the hill. And they would have approached the disciples in the cool of the night, and most likely they were wearing garments, something like a hoodie, having a hood over their head to keep them warm. And there were hundreds of soldiers that that came, and they probably had never seen Jesus. He he was at the temple most of the time, and Roman soldiers had no business there. The policing of the temple area was done by the temple police, so they had no way to distinguish Jesus from the other disciples. And then added to that, Judas knew that the disciples, all of them at one time or another, had pledged that they would protect Jesus. And so it may be possible that one of the other disciples would step up and claim that he was Jesus, and that man would be taken. And of course, we know that could never happen because of prophecy and all that, but Judas didn't know that. So Judas said, I'll give you a sign. And the chief priests in their planning of this probably insisted on that because they didn't want to take any chances in missing him this time. Because here they have him up on the side of the Mount of Olives, away from the people. It's in the darkness. There's none of his followers that are around. And so they need to seize him here, and they don't want him to get away because they risk the chance of Jesus going and telling what happened up there on the hill. And then the people would turn against uh, the Jews. 
So they had to be absolutely sure of this, that they had him. So Judah said, I will make sure that you know him. I know him. Now, can you imagine that thought? What's going on in his mind? I know him, and I will kiss him. What did he know about Jesus? Well, he knew far more of his personal characteristics than you or I know. He knew more about Jesus than we do, and yet he chose to betray him. Well, now we're just getting a little bit down to the nitty-gritty of the despicable act. What makes this thing so disgusting? It's the Judas kiss. Now, you know the terminology, a Judas kiss. And that, that, that's a type of betrayal that really turns our stomachs with contempt. We hate that, a Judas kiss. He kissed him. And let me give you just a little bit of background on the kiss. It was a custom in the East to kiss people on the cheek, but that custom wasn't as widespread as you might think. Perfect strangers did not greet one another with the kiss. I mean, even if you knew the person, there was a social order that had to be respected. You didn't kiss a person who was of higher rank unless you were invited to do so. For instance, a, a student one wouldn't greet his teacher with a kiss unless the teacher invited that kiss. There has to be permission. And there's only one exception to that, and that is if you are really, really close to someone. If you are really intimate with someone, then you could initiate the kiss. And that was normal. That was an affectionate display if you did that. And it's that kind of kiss that Judas gave. He knew that he wasn't going to have to seek permission to give the kiss. And so he came with the mob and with the torches and the weapons, and that was a pretty good tip-off as to what he was up to. But Judas wouldn't have to wait for an invitation. He would just go up to him and he would kiss him, and that kiss would seem natural. And isn't that just nasty? He walked up there under the guise of intimate friendship, and what he did was to slip a dagger into Jesus' ribs. There's Joab and Abner. Now we have a totally different type of outcome, an ominous outcome just like that. And then another interesting point about this is that kisses between disciples were probably encouraged. In Romans 16:16, 16, 16, Paul encouraged believers to kiss others with a kiss one another with a holy kiss and that actually became a symbol of Christian brotherhood. And it might be probably likely that the kiss was developed right here among this group of disciples. And that's why we see it show up in gatherings of Christians at a later time and therefore was encouraged by Paul. And all of that just heightens the dastardly deed. Judas took what was a holy sign of affection and of fellowship and used that as a signal to betray the Lord. And so he said, I will kiss him and then you'll know it's Jesus. Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. So it was agreed upon. It it was a well-thought-out plan. It was actually premeditated murder. I will kiss him, and then you grab him. Oh, we see it in verse 49. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. You remember that I pointed out when we were studying about the supper that Judas never called Jesus Lord? He called him Master. And that's really not any better than the self-righteous Pharisees called him. They called him rabbi, but it wasn't out of respect. 
No, Jesus, Jesus, or Judas rather, didn't come to the garden to respect Jesus as Lord. He came and he called him teacher. He called him master. And actually, he was a master that had never taught him a lesson that he learned very well. Look at verse 49 again. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Now, if you wonder why that New Testament scriptures were written in Greek and not in Hebrew or some other language, there, there are reasons for that. The Greek language was the international language of commerce, and the Greek New Testament or New Testament in Greek really helped to spread the gospel quickly around the known world at that time, around the Roman Empire. That's one of the reasons. But another reason is that Greek is very expressive. Our, our English translations fail, often fail, at, at getting to the meaning of certain expressions because we don't actually have a way of saying them in English. And by the way, just for your information, that's one reason why there is no such thing as a perfect English translation. Now, the English translation here is kissed, but we don't have any way of knowing what kind of kiss that was. Uh, we know, we would guess, it's not a romantic kiss, but neither, neither is this a kiss that's just a peck on the cheek. And here the Greek is very expressive because the word here means a prolonged kiss. In the original language, it means that he held on to this kiss, that he continued to kiss him. It spells out what we read in Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The Revised Version says that the kisses of an enemy are profuse. And either way, it doesn't describe a good kiss. Now here I have to point out another contrast with Judas and Jesus as if we needed any more. But Matthew seems to show his disgust for this for Judas holding on to that kiss using this word. And he's saying here that not only did, did Judas kiss him, but he enjoyed what he is doing. Do you understand that when you study these narrative portions of the Bible, that there's a lot of reading that has to be done between the lines of the narratives? And the white pages contain lots of information that you have to dig out. So we look at this and we notice unstated comments. Judas betrayed him with glee. It was a despicable kiss. It was a disgusting kiss of a coward. But where do you actually see those kinds of descriptions? Where are they in the text? Where do we find the word despicable that describes Judas? Where, where is their word disgusting? Where do we find the word coward? Where, where do we see the vitriol for this dastardly act of Judas? It's not in Matthew. We don't find it in Mark. It's not in Luke, it's not in John, it's not even in Acts when they had to replace Judas and Peter just simply said, we need another apostle because Judas by transgression fell. Not one remark of hatred or bitterness is expressed by anyone. And we think, well, how is that possible? How is that possible? I mean, th these men felt about his act just the same as we do and it was worse for them. They lived through it, they experienced it. But there's not one disparaging remark that's made about Judas. He's just one of the twelve. He's the one that betrayed Jesus. And then who is it that would have the, more cause than anyone to blast Judas? That would be Jesus, wouldn't it? And what did Jesus say? Friend, wherefore art thou come? 
Now, we're going to discuss that question next time. I just want you to see now that Jesus addressed him as friend. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Now, again, the Greek has something for us here that we can't see in English. Judas came with a show of, of intimacy. He came as a brother. He came as a confidant. He came, he came as one who loves. He, he came as one who was a friend would come. Now, it's most interesting here that Jesus didn't receive him that way. He said, friend, but this is not the word for friend that's used in an intimate sense. It's not the word friend that we see in so many other places when Jesus speaks. That's the word philos, and that means an intimate friend. Here, the word that's used for friend is one that simply means fellow. Hey, fellow, nothing about intimate friendship at all. So he called him fellow, not intimate friend. And what Jesus did was to take that word back to the difference between the inferior and the superior. That he spoke as the superior who would not accept that kiss. And that's because it was a kiss that was out of place. Jesus knew that Judas was not his friend. Now, folks, this is truly remarkable because this is the way that you see Jesus showing his disdain for this act. He didn't call Judas a rat, didn't call him a snitch or a snake, but instead he put him in his place in a different way. Now Judas must have felt that stinging rebuke. He knew what this meant. He knew what the change of wording meant. Every kiss before was, was within the disciple, a circle of discipleship, but this one wasn't. Now Judas is an outcast. He's outside of the circle of disciples. And I don't think that Jesus could have hit Judas any harder than if he'd taken his fist and rammed it down his throat. I mean, this is the kind of thing what Judas said here, or Jesus said here, was a statement like he's reaching in right down his throat to grab his heart and tear it out. But you don't see that in English, do you? You can't see it there. That's... This is, why, this is why you need to know the story of Jesus better than any story that you've ever heard. This deserves more time and attention than scorecards and batting averages and touchdown to interception ratios. How well do you actually know the story of Jesus? Well, that's where I want to close the message today. There, there's a lot more to be said, and I'm going to say a lot more when we come back. But have you considered this? Have you considered what it means to be outside the circle of disciples? For three years, Judas was a pretender. He looked just like the others. Uh, he was trusted just like the others. No one suspected him. He was involved in church work just like the others. He was there for the services just like the others. He, he went on visitation with them. He did ministry with them. He sat in classes I mean, he sat on the front row and listened to a teacher that's far better than I could ever hope to be. He was there for all of it. And all the time, he was pretending that he was in the circle. All of the time, he was not a believer. He took of the benefits. He enjoyed being around Jesus, but he wasn't a believer. He was outside. There was no intimate fellowship. And in the end, there are no privileges that are afforded to him because of all the time that he spent with Jesus. And do you realize that it's possible for you to be just like Judas? When Judas approached Jesus, Jesus knew what was in his heart. There's no fellowship there as a brother. And Jesus didn't 
didn't treat him as a brother here. He treats him according to his rightful place. He's, he's outside, and in the end, there will be no mercy for him. And I would submit to you that there's some of you that have no right to offer Jesus a kiss. Oh, you may sing the songs. You come into the uh, congregation and you sing the same songs. Oh, how I love Jesus. But you don't have any right to kiss Jesus in song. You come and you can't fool him. He already knows what's in your heart. You pray to him, but you have no right to kiss him in prayer. And you come into the fellowship of the church, but you don't have any right to kiss him in fellowship. And one of these days, you're going to stand in front of him face to face, and he's going to expose everything that's in your heart. And I don't care if you speak Greek or Hebrew or Chinese or Swahili or whatever it is, you're going to very clearly understand what he has to say to you. He knows your heart. You can't pretend with him any longer. And he'll say to you, friend, why have you come? Why have you come? And it's going to be too late. You've gained nothing at all from all this time of association with God's people in this church. You've gained nothing at all from reading your Bible. In the beginning, I said that we rarely consider our crimes against Jesus as being very serious. Oh, we despise Judas. But we don't despise ourselves when we betray the Lord. Let me tell you one more time. The dastardly deed is never worse than when you pretend intimacy and then betray him. Do you understand that it would be far better for you to stand out in the parking lot and hurl your stones at Berean Baptist Church from there than it is to come on the inside and sit with God's people and kiss Jesus? There's a very sad end to that. It was a sad end for Judas. You can't come in here and kiss him and pretend to be his friend. Now, I hope you'll think about that. I hope it'll give you some food for thought. And think about this yourself. Are you right now in the middle of a betrayal of Jesus? He knows. And you better be sure that you know, too. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, and we got serious issues to think about. There may be someone sitting here today that outwardly they appear to have all the marks of Christianity. Outwardly they look like children of God. They're doing the same things that we do. Come to church often, sing the same songs, pray the prayers. But there's this horrible amount of hypocrisy that's there that says that this person is not really a child of God. They pretend intimacy, but they don't really know you. We're thankful for this, Lord, that Judas was a sinner and sinners can be forgiven. All of us that are saved were once sinners without the grace of God, without any mercy and headed to hell. But then one day you let us hear you. You let us hear your voice calling us as we sung in a song just a few minutes ago. We heard your voice calling us and you granted us mercy and grace Faith for repentance, faith to believe in repentance from our sins, you give it to us. And we thank you for that, Lord. I just pray that you'd speak to some soul's heart today. Show them if they're just a pretender, that needs to change. There's no good outcome. It's a horrible outcome, worse than all, to be a Judas and sit right in the church of the living God. 
Help us, Lord, to see that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.